This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Awesome. So let me just jump into this. So I want to remind us of, of the backdrop. I mentioned it before. I just want to take us there again of a minus of, of, of the backdrop to this, this book that we're going through. It was during a time of great persecution of the church. Emperor Nero was on the throne, and he blamed this great fire in Rome on the Christians, though it was suspected, he was suspected of setting it himself by many. So to throw the blame or throw suspicion off of himself, he blamed the Christians that then commissioned his, his military to hunt them down and to torture them. Christians were being sawn in half. Wild beasts were being unleashed upon them. He was taking Christians and dipping them in tar and lighting them on fire to light his personal gardens. It's got to the point that Christians was, was hiding in the catacombs because they didn't want no one to know who they were at that time because persecution was so crazy at that time. And then during this time, the first written record of the life and ministry of Jesus appears. Before then, people was just sharing by word of mouth about the story of this guy. And people was believing they were being converted because the word of mouth testimony. But now during this time, in the midst of all this great persecution, all of a sudden, the gospel of Mark appears. Detailing the life and the ministry of Christ. Many people believe that the gospel of Mark, though written by Mark, was influenced by Peter. They think that Peter was like, yo, Mark, yo, write this down. And Mark was like, yeah, well, that's good, you know. And some aren't sure. But here's one thing. Whether it originated from Mark himself or whether it's Peter influencing Mark, here's one thing. We're earlier on inside the book. This is just chapter one, right? And Mark sees fit to highlight and set the stage and talk about the authority of Christ earlier on. This sets the stage for everything else that's about to happen inside the book. Understanding the authority of Christ. See, he wasn't just giving them just some good information, some good FYI, like, yeah, this sounds juicy, throw that inside it. That wasn't the case. He was writing about the answer. The answer to everything that was going on, but recognizing the answer had much to do with recognizing the authority of the answer. There was something sobering, something reassuring, something grounding about reflecting on the sovereign authority of Christ in the midst of great pain and suffering. The disciples, they got it. There's something about, about turning your gaze to Christ and his authority in the midst of great pain that was grounding. So this letter comes out. So most of the message will be looking at his authority and how it was displayed and their response to it. So let's go to verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, 
For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. See, scribes, they taught like, like me, someone that studied a whole bunch, right? They taught like someone who heard a lot of good things from a lot of good rabbis, from a lot of good people. The scribes, they, they, they taught with this sort of confidence, confidence because they felt they had studied well. But then Jesus came and he taught like the one that everyone was studying about. He taught like the one that everyone was teaching about. He came and he taught and it was totally different. He taught as one whom not only was there, but whom had created, initiated, and gave purpose and meaning to every single thing else. He taught with this finality. There was something about him that was like, that's the end of the discussion here. He didn't teach with a sense of probably I could have this wrong. Like, this is it. The Greek word that's translated into authority can also be translated as out of substance. His teaching was supremely substantive. There was nothing superficial or light about it. His words carried great weight. The authority that he spoke with was a statement of his identity in and of itself. John 101 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Creation was spoken into existence with his words. At the baptism, the father affirmed the son with words, and now you see his authority being displayed with his words. Let's look at the people's reaction to those words, though. The Bible said that it was astonished. But astonished doesn't do full justice to the Greek word that's trying to be imported here. They're trying to translate a word and they say astonished, but the way that that word embodies things like awe and surprised and amazed, mingled with terrified. It was awestruck, surprised, and at the same time terrified because no one had ever spoken like this. This is different. What's going on here? 23, and immediately there was in this synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? You see a king defining the domain of his kingdom by giving us small glimpses of how far his sovereignty extends by displaying his authority as he ushers in his kingdom. Then what's happening in 23 is, is you see the a side effect of this king ushering in his kingdom as it collides with opposing kingdoms, whether they're naturally or spiritually. Right. But here's the thing that, that stands out. Everyone hears his voice. Everyone is, is frazzled by the obvious display of authority, but only the demonic spirits acknowledge the authority. Everybody else is asking questions. Everybody else is sort of confused, but the demonic spirits acknowledge the authority. Have you come to destroy us? There's so much inside that. Have you come to destroy us? I see about three things there in them acknowledging. First and foremost, it acknowledges Christ's authority over existence and even spiritual things. He has the authority to destroy them. They don't say, have you come to wrestle with us? Have you come to make an attempt to destroy us? Did you come to destroy us? 
That's an acknowledgement of his ability and authority to do just that. But that leads to the next thing that it points out. The question exposes the knowledge of an appointed time of destruction and the demon's terror concerning whether or not that time has come. come on. Yeah. Hold on, is this it? Is it about to happen right now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then the third thing is interesting that I want to linger on some. When he said us, when he said us, it reveals the reality of an entire species of demonic spirits present amongst us that we are too often oblivious to. The us represents the entire world of demonic activity when he says that. He's like, is, is, is our time, us, up, all of us? The truth concerning the presence of demonic forces is a greater reality than most of us want to admit. And more of us are affected by it than we actually think. So I'm going to linger a little bit, just for a little bit, and talk about that. And I want to talk about it in respective of the unbeliever and the believer. So an unbeliever, someone that does not believe in Christ... He's unregenerated, which means a person that's not renewed in his heart and mind by being born again of the Spirit. This person is under the rule and authority of Satan as their king. They are residents of the kingdom of Satan by default. Side effect of the fall, regardless if they know this or don't know it. John 8 and 44 says the devil is their father. They do his will. A kingdom is a place where the will of the king is done. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 refers to them as children of wrath. Again, there's this relationship, father and child, children of wrath. 1 John 5 and 19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So since a kingdom is a reflection of its king, the members of that kingdom are now subject to the will and authority of that king. Thus, non-believers are subject to the will and authority of Satan. How does that look? That means things like demonic possession. Like, literally, a demonic spirit can come in and live inside of that person because he's under the rule and reign of Satan. Demonic manipulation, manipulating you to do something. We step back and we look at the state of this world. We look at things that are happening inside of this world and it's going on all over the place. You think 21 people can get their heads decapitated and not have anything to do with demonic warfare? You'll be missing that. When you look at the state of this world and you're wild at the news and the crazy things, like how could somebody do some of these things? I got an answer for you. This is a world of demonic that's fighting and warring against us constantly that a lot of times we turn a blind ear to, but there's good news. Christ has ultimate authority over Satan. 
So when a person sees Christ, when God opens up his eyes to see him, to see his authority, to see him for who he is, God turns around and exercises authority over Satan and it takes that person and brings him over to his side and adopts him into his family. When he does that, then he himself goes and lives inside of that person via his spirit. And then the Bible said that person is now sealed with the spirit. Making them unsuccessful to demonic possession or manipulation. A Christian is unsuccessful to demonic possession or manipulation. But here where they are open to influence. Demonic spirits can influence even a Christian. The way they do it, they target the depravity of our hearts. The Bible says that a lot of the sins that we commit, it says are things deep down on the inside you actually really want to do that drag you out. So the demonic spirit will attach with that and influence you that way. They can't force you and make you to do it, but they will influence demonic oppression. For the Christian, that can happen. You can feel oppressed and depressed. Why? Because what they target is they try to cause you to doubt the goodness of God towards you. And you feel the sense of being oppressed and you feel the sense of being depressed because what's being targeted here is causing you to doubt God's goodness, causing you to doubt how much he loves you actively, not just in theory. And another thing, that can happen to us is affliction. They can do things to you. They can annoy you. They can bother you. They can do things to you. Even health issues. A lot of health issues are a direct result of demonic influence. Think about Job. That was all Satan right there. That was all demonic influence. All the health issues that he was going through. And the Bible said that God loved Job. God looked at Job and he was pleased with Job, but yet at the same time, the health issues he was dealing with was a reflection of the demonic world. There's some things that we go through inside of our life that are direct results of that. Listen, and I want to I be clear, when, I, when, when, I, when I'm talking about a person that's a Christian and the covering that's, that's over us, listen, just because you attend religious events or come to church doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Christian, a Christian meaning that you are submitted to the leadership of Christ as king and it's no longer you that live but Christ living inside of you. Merely attending a religious events doesn't mean that you are covered and protected from demonic possession and manipulation. I mean, check the story. The man with the unclean spirit was where? In the synagogue. The place where they was listening to the word of God being preached, they was, where they was reading scriptures, that's where he was at. And it seemed like, like he was concealed until the authority of Christ was being exposed. And then at, this, at that time, he exposed himself in reacting to Christ's authority. Peep it, verse 24. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked them saying, be silent and come out of him. I used to read verses like that and I would wonder, okay, well, he is the Holy One of God. 
Why would that offend Jesus that this, even if it's a demonic spirit, saying that you're the Holy One of God? You are. What's the deal here? You even see in verse 34, he, it says that it was happening a whole bunch, and Jesus would, would always silence them because they knew who he was. But does he, I mean, won't you just take it from anywhere? See, the reason they knew who he was is because they used to be angels that were kicked out of heaven by him. They had past experience. That's why they knew who he was. They was angels. Now they're fallen angels, a.k.a. demons. Even though they they know who he is, they are in direct rebellion against him. So he would shut them down constantly. Check this. To acknowledge who he is and not submit to who he is is not only offensive to him, but annoying to him. Acts 16 and 16. Paul and them, they're, they're, they're walking through Philippi, and then there's, there's this slave girl with a demonic spirit walking around, following it around for days, screaming, these men are men of God. They came with the truth. Over and over again, what she's saying was true. But Paul was annoyed by it, turns around and rebukes the spirit out of her. Think about this. To acknowledge the authority of Christ in your life and not submit to him is in step with the characteristic of demons. Understand this right here. This is what they do all day long. Know his authority and refuse to submit to his authority all day long. So you look at your life and you see areas of of your life where you're not submitting to the authority of Christ. That's walking in the characteristics of demons. But Jesus rebuked them saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So here he is, this king, ushering in his kingdom, demonstrating his authority, where I have authority yet, and he demonstrates it right here, that his kingdom encompasses the spiritual realm. This at the same time is a reflection of his kingdom, a place where there is no demonic activity. Let me show you what my kingdom looks like. Bam, demon bounce. And <laughs> this is how my kingdom looks like. There's no demonic influence right here. Now check this. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John's. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And she came and, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. Peep this. The same Jesus that you see at the church is the same Jesus that you see at the home. 
The same one that you're in awe with, the same one that you're worshiping, the same one that you acknowledge his authority at, at, at church, it's the same one that's there with authority in your marriage, the same one that's right there that's wowing you that you say, man, you're great. The same one that's great in those issues at home. But a lot of times we leave his greatness here. Like he was great there, but at home things are different. But it's the same God. He walks from the synagogues to his house and does the same thing. Sing, great God, here and there. Same Jesus that works at home and the same Jesus that works at the church and vice versa. Also, you see another thing. Him still demonstrating what his kingdom looks like and everywhere that his rule is at. So now you see him demonstrating that his kingdom encompasses the natural realm by healing her body. Every healing that you see is a reflection of the kingdom. It's a reflection of the kingdom, of his kingdom, a place where there is no sickness, a place where there is no death. Every single time he's healing somebody, he's showing them, this is what my kingdom looks like. At the same time, showing them everywhere that I have authority over. But there's something that, that I love here when I'm looking at this. You see a personal God. You read the Bible and you read the stories about Jesus. You see people saying, listen, my daughter is sick. She's already at the house. But I know you have authority. And Jesus is like, no, nah, because of your faith, she's held. Go home. You'll find her at the house. All good. You see stories like Jesus like someone touches the hem of his garment and they healed instantly. You see stories like Jesus going to the, the burial site or the tomb of a man that's been dead and decaying for three days, stands outside of the tomb and says, come alive, and the cells inside of his body regenerate, and he comes alive. You know he has the authority to heal just like that, but he goes inside Peter's house where his, his mother-in-law is, is ill. First of all, it's dope that it's his mother-in-law. I would do the same thing with my mother-in-law, too. You know, um, but, um, but you see, he goes inside the house. It's his mother-in-law, but he doesn't just say, get up, be healed. He doesn't do He wants something more. Instead of just telling her to be healed and to get up, he wants her to feel his touch, to feel the warmth of his hand against hers. He wants to take the time to lift her up. That's what it says. He, he lifted her up, and she got hold, and she became healed. He wanted her to feel the warmth of his hand. He wanted to feel the warmth of her hand. She was really ill. She was so sick that she couldn't make it to the synagogue that day. She was bedridden. But instead of just going and saying, be healed, he said, I wanted to show compassion. He wanted to feel the warmth of her body and her to feel his we serve a compassionate and loving God. And her response, he held her. She got up, and her response was to serve. That's how she responded to that. She got up, she like started serving. How do we respond to what God does inside of our life? Thanks, keep moving. But she like, man, I want to serve. 
32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. At the door that day, you see, see the kingdom of God overlapping both the spiritual and the natural world. Demons are being cast out spiritually. And at the same time, what you see happening over there at that door, people are being made whole. The spiritual world and the natural world are overlapping one another. And this is the kingdom of God. And it's being demonstrated right here, displayed right here. You see, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven right here at the door. The whole city was gathered together at the door. And some of us, we see that and we see Peter's house, the door of Peter's house. But I see John 10 verses 1 through 9. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door, the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The whole city was gathered together at the door. What I see is the whole city gathered together at Christ. The door. Let's peep the application. I got three points for the application, and the band, you can come now. Application point number one. Read, study, and listen to the proclamation of God's word, expecting to be astonished by the weight and authority of his truth. Expect this. Sometimes we can allow the gospel to become common to us. And everything we hear only seems like something we've heard before. And we don't realize that we've stopped looking for God. And we're now looking for something that sounds new or different. That theology and info have become idols to us. And we no longer are astonished by the sheer authority of his truths in and of themselves. Remember, they weren't necessarily astonished at what he said, but rather how he said it. For he taught them as one who had authority. In essence, they were astonished with him. There are angels whose job is to just look at God and respond to God. And though they may have this complex vocabulary, they are satisfied with one response over and over and over again. One word response, holy. Astonished. I'm fine just using this word for the rest of my existence if it's in response to you. 
point number two. Consider this spiritual world that we constantly live in, which overlaps this natural one. The demonic world is a reality, and a lot of the things that have happened in our family, like broken marriages, sexual immorality, and much, much more, plus a lot of things that we see going on in the world that breaks our heart at the sheer wickedness, Though it's often a reflection of sin and the fall, it's also largely a reflection of millions of demons fighting against anything that even remotely resembles the kingdom of God. This is a direct assault on God himself. To that, I want to remind us of Ephesians 6 and 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Point number three. Don't just be amazed or astonished at Christ's authority. Submit to it. That's the big deal. That's the thing that the demons and the people had in common. Not submitting to his authority. I don't even want to say much about that. I just, just that. Submit to it. Submit to his authority in every area of your life. Let that be a big deal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how, how good you are. We thank you that you would cause this, this word to be written that we would see it, Lord. Be able to respond to it, respond to the weight of it, Lord. I ask that you will incline our hearts to you, Lord. Incline our minds to you, Lord. Give us ears to hear your words digging deep down into our hearts, Lord. Move us more and more towards you. Move us with deep passion for you, deep passion for who you are, Lord. Let us see how awesome you are, how great you are, and how much you love us, Lord. I ask that you allow these words to, to sink deep down into the hearts and minds of every single one that's listening, Lord, and to bear fruit, to sprout with reflections in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As we get ready for a time of communion, a time of fellowship, of coming together, I think about Mark 16, where the disciples, they're coming back from inside the town, and, and Jesus is like, who do men say that I am? And they're like, well, some people think you're John the Baptist reincarnated and stuff. He's like, some people think you're Jeremiah. Some people think you're this. Some people think you're that. And, and all these responses was wrong responses. And then Jesus says, well, who do you think that I am? They say, Peter responds, you're the Christ, son of the living God. And then Jesus responds, flesh and blood hasn't shown this to you but the Father. See, he wasn't asking that question because he was curious about what they thought. He knew what they thought already. He was asking the question to make a point. That point was, 
the reason why you even see who I am and see my authority because my father has opened your eyes to that reality. He was making this point. Today as we come together for communion, probably you're realizing that you're that guy. You're that gal. Realizing and recognizing the authority of Christ, but not submitting to it. Or probably for the first time, his authority is standing out and you want to respond to it. There's going to be people over here that are going to be willing to take the time to pray with you. Take the time to share the gospel with you in prayer and go boldly to the throne of grace with you. That'll be your time. And then what we have right here is a spread. This is the communion table. It's a reminder and represent that time. And, and Jesus and the disciples are sitting together and they're breaking bread. And the, the bread represents his body that will be broken for us. And the blood represents the blood that poured out. But for us. And he says, man, this is a feast that's going to be set out for eternity. So he says, do this. Do this. Do this as often as you think about me. Do this. Remember this feast. Remember that we're fellowshipping together. This table is for the believer. It's for the Christian. The one that says, I'm submitting my life to Christ. And I want to fellowship with him for eternity. So now is that time. You can come up the middle aisle. You can grab your bread if you want. Grab the cup. And you can fellowship with the drinking of the cup and the bread if God is leading you to spend some time in prayer there's some people that want to labor with you in prayer part of you realize there's some things going on inside of your life and it's more than just bad behavior things going on inside your household and you need the spirit of God like what and you just want to pray there's people here for that so let's worship Let's serve our great God in this fellowship. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.